The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. We're about a 16-month hiatus. We are back in the book of Luke, a book, just a wonderful book full of truth. And we're going to camp out for a few weeks on the, the words of Jesus, specifically. And so we're going to look here in Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 36. Love your enemies. Now, maybe some of you have heard of Francis Schaeffer. Maybe he's an author you've read. Well, he died in 1984. But though he's dead, he still speaks. A number of people that I know, me personally being one of them, have benefited from his books. He engaged the culture. He engaged popular arguments against Christianity with rigorous argument to demonstrate the truth of the gospel, to demonstrate what happens when a culture departs from a generally Christian worldview. And in by doing that, and by showing the drift of Western thought, he, he sought to highlight the truth of the gospel, the truth of Christianity, so that people might be saved. Even though his books dealt with profound philosophical ideas, and substantive arguments for the superiority and the reality of the Christian faith, he wanted to be known primarily as an evangelist. He didn't want to be known as an apologist. He didn't want to be known as a philosopher. He wanted to be known as someone who sought to bring the gospel with clarity to people who didn't know Christ. Nevertheless, he did use rational argument grounded in a Christian worldview to decimate opposing worldviews. He spoke and wrote on the history of philosophy and Western thought in order to demonstrate the reality and the superiority of a Christian worldview. He countered naturalistic philosophies by showing their ultimate self-refuting foundations. He showed how a humanist worldview leads ultimately to existential despair. It leads to arbitrary law. It leads to a loss of freedom and a host of other societal ills. So he worked hard intellectually and he called Christians to re-engage these issues intellectually not for their own sake, but in order to demonstrate the truth of the gospel. However, despite all this focus on intellectual engagement, Schaefer said that, quote, this is him quoting, quoting him now, love was the final apologetic. Love was the final apologetic. Truth and love go, belong together. They go together. And it was supernatural love displayed by Christians that would demonstrate with compelling clarity to the world that Jesus Christ was indeed the truth and the life and the way. And Jesus himself indicated that this would be the case. He said in John 13, 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love would be the compelling view, the compelling element that would draw people to see Christ as real. There's just something about love, true, genuine, not sentiment, but true, genuine love for one's neighbor, and particularly love of one's enemies that compel people to see the truth of Christianity. And so we're going to look specifically at this love that we're called to have for our enemies. It is compelling. It's supernatural. And I want us to keep that in mind. This kind of love, this love for our enemies is a supernatural love. And it's this kind of supernatural love that will display for the world the reality of Christ in your life and in the church and will draw people to the gospel. So this is very serious that we grasp what Jesus means here and what he intends for his church by saying and commanding and instructing us to love your neighbors. Love, we want to love our neighbors. He begins this section by saying, I say to those who hear, but to I say to you who hear, and by introducing these words with that phrase, Jesus is intending to communicate that this is not something that you just grab and do. This is a commandment that is so difficult, so hard, in fact, so impossible, that it requires supernatural grace in order to accomplish it. I say to those who hear, there are only those who have been born again by the Spirit, who by that regeneration have now devoted themselves to following Christ who can actually hear these words and do them. So Jesus knows that and he's saying to those who can hear this, this is what I tell you, to my true disciples I say to you, love your enemies. And 
this needs to be a supernatural work. This needs to be a supernatural work because that phrase, understand, understood rightly, is fiercely oppositional to our natural instincts, isn't it? I mean, if we're just honest with ourselves, the easiest thing to do is to get angry with our enemies, to hate our enemies, to want the worst for our enemies. And in fact, that phrase, love your neighbor and hate your enemies, is actually floating around Israel at the time of Jesus. It wasn't a biblical teaching. It wasn't an Old Testament teaching, believe it or not. You, you maybe could conclude that if you had kind of a vague understanding of the Old Testament, but it wasn't an, un, an Old Testament teaching. It was an interpretation of the Old Testament that was floating around Israel at the time, and Jesus had to correct that, and you see that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. Uh, you've heard that it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies, but I say to you. Jesus wasn't correcting the Old Testament. He's actually pointing them to rightly understand it. Hating your enemies was not a biblical teaching, but we shouldn't look down our noses at the people in Israel at the time who said that. Because we know our hearts, and we know that our natural tendency is to despise our neighbor or to despise our enemy, isn't it? It's just the easier thing to do. Someone's mean to you, just be mean back. It's the way to do it. It's the way we do things. It's just the way of the human heart. But Jesus says, I'm calling you to a supernatural life. I'm calling you to do something that actually demonstrates that you, are, that you belong to the king of the universe. I want you to do something that goes wholly against your natural instincts. I want you, want you to love your enemies. Now, let's just stop right there for a moment. Because I guarantee you, well... I'm pretty certain, like 99.9% .9 certain, that this is not the first time you've heard this phrase. Love your enemies. And you may not even have heard it in the context of biblical teaching. You may have just heard it out in the culture, from friends, on TV, from the media. Love your enemies. It's what you need to do. It's how we live. We love our enemies. We need to camp out on this phrase for just a moment because we actually have to rescue it from its cultural connotations. You'll find, as we work through the Gospel of Luke... There are, there are several statements that Jesus makes. We'll even see this next week when we look at the passage, judge not and you will not be judged, that these phrases have been ripped out of their biblical context. They've been applied in a cultural context, and often, most often, they're applied wrongly without their true meaning. And so when you work through these texts, you actually have to do some work to rescue Jesus' words from their cultural connotations. And same with this phrase, love your enemies. And let me just give you a personal example of what I mean. So in May 2nd of 2011, when the day that Navy SEALs killed Osama bin Laden, I had a friend on Facebook, just out of the blue, well, I guess not out of the blue, but they posted on Facebook, they changed their profile picture. That's all they did. And their profile picture went from their picture to a, a drawing, kind of a silhouette, colored drawing of Osama bin Laden, and around the frame, and, and, and in the frame, it, it was quoting Matthew 5, which is a parallel to this passage, which is, I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, and so on. That's all that was there. That's, they just posted it, and there you go. And they never stated explicitly what one should infer from the post, but it at least implied that Jesus' words, because remember, this person posted it on the day that... Osama bin Laden was killed, that you should at least infer from the post that Jesus' words apply to national military action against our enemies, particularly this action taken against bin Laden. And I want us to see that these words do not apply that way. These words are not for a, nation, a sovereign nation state in instructing it how to conduct itself militarily. That's not what these words are intended for. They are intended for Jesus' disciples in their personal interaction with their personal enemies. Jesus is not overturning the government's God-given prerogative in Romans 13 to bear the sword and to defend itself from enemies within and enemies without. We know that from Romans 13. We also know it when John the Baptist was speaking to the Roman soldiers. And they wanted to know, how do I bear fruits in keeping with repentance? He did not instruct them to leave the military. He instructed them and told them to 
do this, to be content with their wages, not to extort money with threats or false accusations. So you have within Romans 13 an explicit defense of the uh, an ind independent nation state's ability to defend itself. You also have an implicit, tacit approval of that kind of action by John the Baptist not requiring the Roman soldiers to leave their military posts. Loving our enemies as Jesus' disciples does not mean that we resist our country's exercise of justice in military protection, which I would argue the killing of bin Laden certainly was. These are instructions for how individual Christians are to conduct themselves among their personal enemies. Secondly, we have to note that loving our enemies does not mean that we are silent with regard to the truth, as though loving our enemies is a kind of Christian live and let live. Maybe you've thought that. Maybe those kind of connotations you've had with regard to this statement. Jesus was the greatest lover of his enemies the world has ever seen. Amen? Amen. There's no one like Jesus in terms of loving your enemies. Just, just a beautiful, perfect, glorious example of how to love your enemies. And yet, Every time you turn a page in the New Testament Gospels, you find Jesus confronting his enemies with regard to the truth. He loved his enemies, and he confronted them with the truth, just about at every turn. And Jesus recognized the status that he had among his enemies. He says this in John 7, 7. He says, The world cannot hate you, speaking to his disciples, but it hates me because I testify about, because I testify about it that its works are evil. So we're not, when, when Jesus says, love your enemies, he's not, just, he's not somehow implying that you just close your mouth and you ignore unbelief or arguments against the truth. Third, when Jesus says, love your enemies, he does not mean that we must allow personal injustice to prevail in all circumstances. And the reason we know that is from Acts chapter 16. If you want to turn there with me for a moment, Cliff showed us this passage a few months ago, as we were discussing the church's relation to the state and its various requirements and regulations. But I want us to here see that Paul, who was also a great lover of his enemies, didn't act passively in the face of personal injustice. Notice what happens here. In verse 35, but, it, it was day, uh, but when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let these men go. So these Paul and the others had been put into, Paul and Silas had been put into prison, beaten, thrown into prison. And now the magistrates have decided to let these men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent you uh, to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. And Paul goes on to say, all right, it's cool. Love your enemies. We're good. It's, it's fine. No worries. Because I need to love my enemies. And so we're just going to let this one slide. Is that what Paul said? Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison, and do they now throw us out secretly? So this was unjust. It was unethical. It was wrong. So Paul didn't roll over and say, Well, love your enemies, therefore I'm not going to mention anything. No, he actually required that they act justly and ethically in this case. No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens, so they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So I, I want us to see that Paul loved unbelievers. He gave his life so that they would be saved, but that didn't create in him a passivity towards evil and injustice. This is so key because that's the kind of feeling you would get in some context in our culture when this phrase is applied. Turning back now to Luke chapter 6. Now, what's important to say here is that we're not qualifying Jesus' words in order to escape the toughness of these commandments. Okay? That's not what I just did. I want us to understand these words in their biblical context not in their cultural connotations, so that we can rightly apply them. It'd be no use to understand them wrongly and then try to apply them. But we're not trying to qualify them, kind of like the lawyer when he was saying, okay, then uh, who is my neighbor? That's not what we're doing here. 
We want to understand exactly what Jesus is saying. And so we have to mention what he does not mean when he says, love your enemies. And that's what we just did. There are far too many Christians who perpetuate the idea that loving one's enemies implies that you must somehow be passive and indifferent towards evil and unbelief. And that these instructions apply to military action. They do not. What does it mean, therefore, to love our enemies? What does it mean? Well, let's ask this question first. Who are our enemies? And you might, as soon as I said that, you might have been thinking about that nasty neighbor or that nasty in-law or that employer who's just mean to you all the time. And you might, I know who my enemies are. I got this. I need to hear this because I know who my enemies are. But Jesus actually has a specific kind of enemy in mind. So let's look over chapter, to chapter 6, verse 22. Remember, we want to read these uh, verses in their immediate context and not just have a generic idea of what enemies Jesus is referring to, but a specific idea here. Verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. The enemies that Jesus is calling you to love are specifically those who persecute you for your faith in Jesus. Those who hate you and exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. The language is similar. A number of the same words are being used both here and in chapter 6, verses 27 and following. Now, by saying that, we're not giving you room to hate your employer or hate your nasty neighbor and these other people in your life. That's not what he's saying. In fact, if God gives you the grace to love your enemy, then he certainly will give you the grace to love these other people who are mean and nasty in your life. But another reason we know that Jesus is referring specifically here to those who persecute you for your faith in Christ is not only the immediate context from chapter 6, verse 22, but also because we're told in the New Testament that you shouldn't have enemies for any other reason than that they are persecuting you for your faith in Christ. What do I mean? Well, J.R.'s already read Romans chapter 12, and we learn in Romans chapter 12 that so far as it depends on you, be at peace with whom? Everyone. Hebrews 12, 14 says, strive for peace with everyone. That word strive is a very strong word. It even means persecute in some uh, context. It means to long, to long after, to pursue hard after peace with everyone. You should not have en enemies because you're a cantankerous neighbor. You shouldn't have enemies because you're a liar or a thief. You shouldn't have enemies because you're prone to road rage. You shouldn't have enemies because you are engaged in illicit gambling and now have the mafia after you. You should not have enemies for any other reason than your faith in Christ. You shouldn't have enemies because, because you like to push your weight around and go off at the mouth or whatever it might be. We are to imitate Paul, became all things to all men, and removed all unnecessary stumbling blocks from his life so that many would be saved. Christians should be characterized as peacemakers. And that doesn't guarantee that you are going to uh, be at peace with all men. That's why Paul says, as far as it depends on you, you strive after it. You do what you can. But you know what? Even after all that, there will be those who oppose you specifically for your faith in Christ. These people will be your enemies, and these are precisely the people that you are to love. Love your enemies. You may still have people in your life who are mean and nasty, not so much because of your Christianity, but because they are just mean and nasty, right? And these verses would apply to them too. See, Jesus's point is that supernatural love, love loves those who don't love you back. Supernatural love loves those who are even mean to you. That's what displays the reality of Jesus in your life and in my life, is this supernatural ability to love the person who hates us. Practically, tangibly. So Jesus is calling you to love those who hate you because of your commitment to Christ and his word. Well, as we'll see in a moment, this love is not passive. It's not mere sentiment. It is a divine, supernatural affection that bears itself out practically and outwardly. 
Let's look at the verses now in verse 27 to see how this works. Our love for our enemies should evidence itself materially, verbally, and spiritually. And I don't mean to use that word spiritually as saying that there's not spiritual overlap with all three of these, but nevertheless, I'm using that as just a category to help us think through these individually. First, materially, do good to those who hate you. That's what he says. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. The phrase do good uh, refers throughout the New Testament to tangible good deeds. Jesus is commanding his disciples to actively do good to those who persecute us for our faith in Christ. Actively. To look for ways to do it. And we have Old Testament precedent for this. This is great. Exodus 23, 4 says this, quote, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. Isn't that great? That is a tangible good deed to an enemy. Caring for his property. It might blow his mind. Wait, I thought you hated me. No, I don't hate you. I love you. What? You what? Proverbs 25, 21. Quote, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. Now, an encouraging example of this is found in Ray Comfort. You guys know who Ray Comfort is? He's, he's an evangelist down in Southern California. And when uh, I was going to school, we would do some street evangelism. And I had the privilege one day, we we're out there handing out tracts. And there goes Ray Comfort walking along, handing out tracts, just, I mean, a lot, a lot more than we were. I mean, he, he was like, we're kind of afraid. And he's just, <laughs> anyways. Well, he's, he, is, uh, he gets blasted on YouTube quite a bit. And there was this one particular young lady who just was exceedingly harsh and mean in the way she reviewed one of his videos. It was a Christmas video. And shortly after she reviewed it on a video, she posted another video. Only this time she had gotten a little letter from Ray Comfort and his wife. And you're thinking, yeah, and Ray and his wife took her to task, preached the gospel to her again, once again, rebuked her for her meanness, and got after her. No, that's not at all what happened. The note said this. She, she showed it on, online. Quote, from Ray and Sue Comfort, P.S., saw your review of Christmas Gone Viral. By the way, I don't hate you. And he included a smiley face, because that's what you do when you love your enemies. You conclude smiley faces on the notes. <laughs> Included in that note was a $100 gift card. Boom. And, and she, she was amazed. She, quoting her, she says, this is amazing. If he doesn't really hate me, that's amazing. I mean, that's what she was left with. Now, she, she didn't come to Christ in that moment, but she definitely saw something, I think, supernatural. A powerful, tangible demonstration of love for one's enemies. I mean, she had just raked him over the coals, and not just in a kind of cool, detached, academically uh, careful, nuanced uh, characterization of his arguments. No, she nailed him personally and just let him have it. And he responds with tangible goodness towards her, and it blew her mind, and I believe glorified God and fulfilled that in calling in Rome, uh, Matthew 5, where it says that we're to let all the world see our good works and they'll glorify our Father in heaven. I think our Father in heaven was glorified by our brother Ray Comfort's doing good to this enemy. What a beautiful, beautiful picture. Christ also calls us to love our enemies verbally. Bless those who curse you. To bless in this context is, to, is the opposite of curse. To curse someone is to wish physical and spiritual harm upon them just generally speaking. To bless them, then, is to wish them fear, uh, physical and spiritual joy in life. To curse someone is to speak ill of them. To bless them is to speak well of them. So to bless our enemies is, is first and foremost to offer the gospel to them with the real hope. I mean, this is where it gets down to heart-level supernatural work. Do you want your enemy to be saved? And so you bless them with the gospel, not in a self-righteous, you're going to hell and I'm going to heaven, but in a, would you be saved? Would you trust in Christ? I love you. So you bless them. But I also think it means that we, we find ways to speak well of our enemies. We refuse to return curses for curses, slander for slander, insult for insult. 
And I'm not talking about offering our enemies some empty flattery or pseudo compliments. And I'm not talking about ignoring their evil or unbeliefs or unbelief. But as Christians, we should be known for speaking well even of our enemies. And this would just blow people's minds. There's just not a category for this. I love how this one commentator puts it. He says, quote, the disciples could acknowledge where people truly stood before God. Okay, so you can, you can speak the truth, you can preach the truth. They could m- make it clear that what the justice of God would mean for those who steadfastly refuse to listen to God. So you can, you can confront unbelief by, while you are loving your enemies. But this is great. But his disciples were to seek to benefit their enemies as much as possible. Isn't that great? Jesus' disciples are to seek to benefit their enemies as much as possible. First of all, spiritually with the gospel, but in other ways as well. Next, we are to love our enemies spiritually. And as you can see, there's, there's overlap here. So I'm not trying to draw a hard and fast distinction here. But I'm just using that word to highlight next what Jesus is calling to. We are to love our enemies spiritually. Jesus calls us to pray for those who abuse us. Pray for them. Because... Our enemies who are persecuting us for our faith in Christ are in a far worse situation than we are. Far worse situation than we are. Their hatred and abuse are actually clear indications that they do not know God, even though they may make a claim to religion. Jesus even said in John chapter 16, verse 2, that there's coming a day when there are people who will kill you, my disciples. They'll kill true disciples thinking that they're actually serving God by killing God's people. Isn't that that crazy? It's happening today, and it will continue to happen. So those people are indicating by their hatred of Jesus' true disciples that they're actually on the pathway to eternal punishment in hell. So what they warrant is not our hatred in return, but what? Our compassion to pray for them and to pray genuinely for their salvation. Your suffering is temporary. Your suffering at their hands is temporary. Their suffering, if not changed by faith in Christ, will never end. So Jesus calls us to compassionately pray for their salvation. Now, an important caveat. When Jesus is saying to pray for those who abuse you, he is definitely not calling all people, women in particular, to remain in a physically abusive abusive relationship or marriage and just to bear up and pray for the abuser. Let's just be real clear about that. If a woman is being abused by her husband, she is to leave him and get to safety. Yes, she is to pray for his salvation, but she must flee his abuse. Secondly, Jesus does not imply that we must remain under the abuse Uh, all the time or or without interruption. Jesus told his disciples that there was a time when it was appropriate to flee from one town to the next when you're being persecuted in one town. Jesus's instruction to pray for our abusers doesn't imply that we always remain under their abuse if there is an appropriate opportunity to get out from under it, but only that we pray for them because their hatred towards us is an indication that they're not right with God. And it takes supernatural faith to see through the abuse, to see the spiritual condition of the abuser, and to pray for their salvation. But offering those two caveats, we are to pray for those who abuse us. But remember, this is in the context of persecution. And we have to make these qualifications, because Jesus goes on to say in verse 29, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And you might be thinking, well, here it is, Derek. This indicates that you're to just remain under abuse and persecution indefinitely, right? Isn't that what he's saying? If they hit us once, just let them hit you again. Is that what Jesus is saying? I don't think so. Again, let's keep in mind, that's why it's so important for us to see this in the context of of persecution. Jesus is referring to persecution, and in this case, it's physical persecution. When Jesus says, strikes, he's, I believe, referring to striking, like hitting in the face, because 10 times out of 11 in the New Testament, that's what that word means. So he's meaning physics. So when you're getting smacked, that's what he's referring to, physical persecution. But here's what I think he's saying. When it comes time to endure physical persecution for the sake of the gospel, do not resist it. If you can escape it, great. 
If they persecute you in one town, flee from the next. Jesus did say that. But if it happens that you must endure physical abuse from persecutors for the sake of Christ, receive it. And that's a hard word. But I think that's what Jesus is saying here. Endure it. Don't try to kill your persecutor. Don't retaliate. Don't use their gun and try to grab their gun and shoot them, like in so many action movies. You can speak to them and confront them with truth, as we see in Jesus' life. Let me just read this little passage from Jesus' life and John, towards the end of his life as he was on the way to be crucified. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple, where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I have said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? I'm like, dude, he is the high priest. But anyways. <laughs> Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. And if what I said is right, why do you strike me? So Jesus was struck, but he didn't grab their swords and lop off their heads, and he didn't call in the armies of angels who would have wiped them out in a moment, but he did have a word. He did confront their hypocrisy. He did confront their wrong thinking, but he didn't retaliate physically in order to destroy them. He received their blows. And I think that's what he means when he says, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And that's what he's referring to when he says, and to the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. This is all within the context of physical persecution. When it finally comes to bear it, bear it willingly and bear it without recourse to physical violence or retaliation or bitterness against your persecutors. Again, this is a supernatural ability that only comes by way of the Spirit living in a believer. This is not natural for us, is it? But it's what Christ calls us to. And I really don't think that Jesus is talking about acts of violence or theft committed by criminals against us. As though he's saying, you know, if someone comes and breaks into your house and threatens you and your family, that you're just to kind of let them do it. I don't, I don't think that's what Jesus is calling us. He's not calling us to absolute pacifism. Jesus even tells his disciples to arm themselves with a sword later in Luke's gospel, because he knew that ministering in a fallen world was dangerous. When Jesus is saying that, what Jesus is saying is that loving your enemy, the one who hates you because of your faith in Christ, there will come a time when it is appropriate and godly for you to receive their physical abuse and persecution, even like the apostles did in Acts chapter 5, and even be ready to thank God that you were counted worthy to receive that kind of persecution. Receive the blows. Let them take away your clothing. We see this perfectly exemplified in Jesus, in his arrest, his trial, in his death. We see it in the lives of the apostles. We see it in Stephen as he is being stoned to death, praying for his murderers. Now, in the next verse, Jesus is going to turn a slightly different direction, but not too much. It still fits within this context of physical persecution. Note what he says. Give to everyone who begs from you. And to the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Now, this word for begs could just simply be the word ask. Beg has a really strong connotation. Ask is a little less. But regardless of what you choose, either ask or beg, the meaning is the same. Jesus is instructing his disciples to a radical kind of generosity even towards one's enemies, if you can believe it. Now, when you read that, is Jesus saying, give to everyone indiscriminately? Everyone who asks you for money, the Christian thing to do is to give it to them. Everyone, everyone, everyone. Is that what Jesus is saying? Well, we know that's not what Jesus is saying, because in 2 Thessalonians, Paul is saying that there are people who should not receive any kind of financial remuneration if they're not willing to work. So Jesus is not suggesting that everyone, every single person who comes up to you and asks you for money, that you're supposed to give it to them. 
But for those who are in genuine need, the Christian should be ready and willing to open their hands, even if it means opening their hands to their enemies. Great illustration of this comes from Pastor R. Kent Hughes. He tells the story of a former communist dictator, Eric Honecker, who had, when the Berlin Wall had fallen, been stripped of all of his offices and privileges in 89, 1989, and even rejected by his own communist party. And he didn't have a place to live. He and his wife didn't have a place to live. They were destitute. They were homeless. Guess who took him in? A pastor of all people. Pastor Homer learned of Honecker and his wife and decided to do something about their situation. And he was the director of a Christian help center in the area, so he had access to shelters that he could provide for people in need. And he didn't think that it was appropriate for this couple to be in one of those shelters because there are other people in more destitute situations. So what did he do? He and his wife took this enemy of theirs into their home. And it gets even more complex than that because Honecker's wife, years prior, had been in charge of the East German educational system, right? And this was a system that was designed to discriminate against Christians. So the, the, the Homer's family, eight out of ten of their children, were unable to attend higher education precisely because of Heinecker's wife, Honecker's wife's policies against Christians. So they had tangible pain and suffering they'd endured because of this very couple. Nevertheless, they were now caring for them and providing for them their enemies in their own home. It's a beautiful story of supernatural love that Jesus calls us to pursue in our own lives. When we give to our enemies or to anyone else in need, and we'll see that Jesus is going to give this a broader application. It's not going to just be to enemies later in the passage. But nevertheless, when we give, we should not require them to pay us back. We, that's what he means when he says, when, when they take away your goods, do not demand them back. This applies to both enemies and to those who are in need. And it's a supernatural kind of love, isn't it? As we've already stated. Verse 31, and as you wish to others would do to you, do so to them. And what does he mean here? This has been called the golden rule. What is he referring to? He's referring to love. It's not wrong to want to be loved by others, to be treated with love by others. Therefore, treat others with love. And we know that he's talking about love because he's already been talking about love, but then he's also going to move into verse 32, if you love those who love you. So that's the measure of how you love others. How would you want to be treated? It's a basic principle. Let yourself, in the way you treat others, be guided by how you'd want to be treated, namely by love. So that's verses 27 through 31. That's the commandment. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Verses 32 through 36 now are going to be the theological grounds for loving our enemy, the theological grounds for loving our enemy. What do I mean by that? Well, notice what Jesus does. He's going to ask some rhetorical questions here, and they're meant to stir up our thinking to get us to think about how this logically should work, okay? Verse 32, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. See what he's doing here? He's indicating that there must be something supernatural at work. Because if you just follow the natural tendency of your heart, which is to love those who love you back, to do good, those, to, do good to those who do good to you, to be nice to those who are nice to you, that doesn't demonstrate necessarily that you are born again. It doesn't demonstrate that you know the God of the universe. It doesn't demonstrate your salvation. Verse 33, and if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. How can you claim to be infused with supernatural grace if you just are always following the natural inclinations of your heart and just doing what those who are not born again are doing? 
You see the logic here? And if you lend to those with whom, uh, from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. What's different about you? What's different about us if we're just following that same course? Now, what's interesting is the word benefit in verse 32, in the ESV, the word benefit in verse 32, the word benefit in 33, and then the word credit in 34 is all the same Greek word. And if you're using the New American Standard, it's a little more consistent at this point because it uses credit for each verse. And I think that's more helpful because it's showing you that this is the same word. The, same, the word is charis. Some of you have named your daughters charis. This is the word. And what does it mean? Well, in most contexts in the New Testament, in fact, probably 90% of them, the word means grace, God's grace to us. It can mean favor, it can mean thanks, but it typically means grace. There's a specific word for credit, and it's not this one. It's, where, it's the word kleos, and it's used in 1 Peter 2.20 in a similar context. Listen to how it's used there. For what credit is there if, when you sin, you are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. Why didn't Jesus use the word for credit like Peter does? He uses the word charis. Well, interestingly, it gets even more interesting because in 1 Peter 2, 19 and 20, the word charis is translated as gracious. So I'm going to read you all of 1 Peter 2, 19 and 20. This is what it says. Similar context, similar instruction. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious, this is a charis thing. When mindful of God, you uh, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit, what kleos, is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if you do good and suffer for it when you endure, it is a gracious, charis thing in the sight of God. Okay, are you starting to see why Jesus used this word charis to talk about this subject and in this passage? He used it because loving one's enemies is a mark of supernatural grace. What grace is it to you? How can you claim to have God's grace pulsing through your heart when you only love those who love you? Loving one's enemies and doing good to those who are either indifferent or hostile to us and lending to those whom we know will never pay us back is a sign that you know God and God knows you. But if you profess to be a disciple of Jesus and you only love those who love you, how can you assure yourself that you're actually a child of God? That's what Jesus is saying. Notice how he ends the section. He says, But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is heaven is merciful. In other words, your love for your enemies is a reflection of your own father's love for his enemies. If we know the God who loves his enemies, if we are his child, if we have his spirit, what will be the outflow but to love our enemies? He sends his reign on the just and the unjust. He does good to those who don't want anything to do with him. How can we claim to know this God if we only love those who love us? That's the, the point behind Jesus' rhetorical questions here. On the other hand, if you love your enemies and do good to those who hate you and bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you, this is evidence, this is powerful evidence of God's grace in your life. And grace is really the right word, isn't it? These are tough, tough Commandments, but God's grace enables us to fulfill them. Now, as we are wrapping up here, I want us to notice a couple more things here in verses 35 and following. Notice he says, Love your enemies, do good in land, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. You will be. First, notice that our reward will be great. We need to see this. Jesus' commandments are always grounded in promises. Here's a promise. Your reward will be great. Loving our enemies and allowing them to take away our possessions and then lending to others without expecting any earthly return, 
Doing all of that, you don't actually lose anything. That's Jesus' point. You don't actually lose anything because our eternal return, despite no earthly return, actually compensates for any loss we might have in this life. In this sense, the Christian can say, and I remember hearing this phrase years ago, and it just blew my mind, but it rung true biblically, that Christians never truly sacrifice. You might be thinking, whoa, that doesn't sound New Testament. Let me tell you why it's true. In this sense, the Christian can say, even after years and years of earthly loss and sacrifice, true loss and true sacrifice, painful loss and painful sacrifice, we can say that we never made a sacrifice because our heavenly reward swallows up any loss in this life with infinite gain, the greatest of which is God himself. But second, I want us to see, I want us to wrestle with this statement that we will be sons of the Most High. That might trip you up a little bit. What does Jesus mean here? Does he mean we have to secure our status as God's children by loving our enemies? So that if we love our enemies enough and we do enough good that we will be sons of the Most High? No, I don't think that's the case. In fact, I emphatically state that that is definitely not the case. And the reason we know that is, verse 36, be merciful even as your father is merciful. Their status as God's children and him as their father is already secure. That's why he says, be merciful as your father in heaven is merciful. You're reflecting your father and you're loving of your enemies. You have connection with your father in heaven. You're to reflect him in loving your enemies. What does this mean you will be sons of the most high? Well, I think the key is in, in reading it next to your reward will be great. When will you get this great reward? that will swallow up all your earthly loss. When do you get it? Is it tomorrow? Is it your best life now? Is it the lottery three days from now? Is that when you get it? No, you get it when Christ returns. You get it at the end of the age, when he gives it to you personally and gives himself to you personally. So I think we are to, intended to read that you will be sons of the Most High in that light. Namely, there's coming a time when your status as a child of God, known only to you and to God, and generally among the church, will be declared from the rooftops to the entire universe. You are a son of God, and all people will know it. You will be sons of the Most High, and your life, by loving your enemies now, will reflect that. You are a son of the Most High. You are merciful to your enemies, just as your heavenly Father is merciful to his enemies. And there's, we need grace for this kind of life, don't we? You, you might be listening here today thinking that there's no way I can live a life like that. And I would say, that's right. That's true. You can't. I can't. We need the grace of the gospel. Only a heart changed by Christ himself can begin to live a life like this. By saying that you will be a son of God if you live this way, Jesus is emphasizing your need for radical heart change. He's saying that it's only children of God who can live this way. Only those who, are, who have God's spirit living in them can live this way. You're not saved, you're not set right with God by loving your enemies. The beauty of the gospel is that God declares you right with him even while you're not unloving. The moment you were saved, you were not a loving person. You were ungodly. The one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies who? The loving? The one who loves their enemies? No, the ungodly. You're rescued by God. You come into a relationship with him on the basis of Christ's work alone, not, the, not on any basis of your works. You are still ungodly. God saves you. He cleanses you. He redeems you. And then he sends you out on a life of reflecting your heavenly father who is merciful to his enemies. But you first need to come to Christ. We are so utterly sinful, we couldn't begin to carry out this calling apart from a brand new heart. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came down to earth, took upon himself a genuine human nature, lived and fulfilled all of God's righteousness in your place, and then died for your sin in your place, so that through faith alone, you can be right with God, brought into a right relationship with him, born again, regenerate, and now begin this walk of faith, loving your enemies. But that's the, that's the only way it comes about. 
through Christ and through the gospel. I'm sure there are people out there who hear this and would like to love their enemies more. The only way it happens is through Christ and through the gospel. It comes through by you saying, in fact, that you are God's enemy and seeing him, God himself in Christ, as the supreme lover of enemies, namely you. And not merely as an example, but as the one who died in your place, who died in his enemy's place. That's where we start. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 5. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by, uh, by him by, from the wrath of God. For while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. God so loved his enemies that he sent his only son to die in their place. Jesus did everything that he commands us to do in this passage. He loved his enemies. He did good to those who hated him. He blessed those who cursed him. He prayed for those who abused him. And that was us. We were Christ's enemies. We hated him. We cursed him. We abused him. We hated everything he stood for. Yet he loved us. He did good to us. He blessed us. He even prayed for us in John 17 and continues to pray for us to this day. This Christ is our Savior, and if you are his enemy today, he calls you to lay down your weapons and to receive full pardon from heaven today. If that sounds good, too good to be true, it isn't. Look in the scriptures. It is true. But if you refuse to lay down your weapons and continue in hostility, if you continue to be God's enemy, he will pay his enemies back someday with perfect righteousness. So won't you come to him? Why would you wait? Why would you wait and not come to Christ today? Don't remain God's enemy. But if you are a believer today, remind yourself of the grace of Christ in the gospel. Remind yourself that your father was merciful to you, an enemy. Meditate on these glorious truths and then move into this passage and seek to love your enemies by the power of Christ. Let's do good to those who hate us. Let's bless those who curse us. And pray for those who abuse us to the glory of God. Let's pray. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for these truths. They are challenging, but they're infused with grace. We don't have to remain convicted. You lift our head. You tell us that we are loved. Even while we were enemies, we're loved. And you purchase us. And you make us your own. And so, God, I pray that these truths would weave their way through our hearts and minds so that we may truly love our enemies, so that, the people, would, that so people would see that there is a supernatural power among us, that they be drawn to Christ and to the gospel. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.